Thanks, Damien. For those who don't know me, my name's Jeff Leader. I'm part of the ministry team here. And uh, we're going to look at that passage a little bit deeper as we uh, go into our sermon. So let's just bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come to us through your Holy Spirit. Speak to us, challenge us, correct us, move us to follow you um, and to give you glory in all that we do and say. We pray that we will be able to focus this morning, Lord, and allow you to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the uh, features of our modern contemporary church services is that we endeavour to give meaning to what we say and pray. And so, for example, we've done away with a lot of the, the old rote prayers and liturgies and replaced them with what we refer to as extempore prayers, where we can actually focus on current and pressing issues. But the issue with set prayers is that we can rattle off the words without really thinking what they mean. For example, we prayed the Lord's Prayer this morning. Don't do that very often, do we? But many years ago, we would pray the Lord's Prayer in every single service. So people became used to the words that hopefully remember them. The trouble with rote prayers is that you actually just let the, the words wash over you after a while. So that really take root in one's heart. But the Lord's Prayer is, is really a beautiful prayer and it's worth actually doing reasonably regularly because it's full of meaning and relevance and it really should shape our prayer time, our quiet times, in just the way it's, it's laid out. That was why Jesus gave it to his disciples. And the prayer contains some rather deep spiritual truths and it's one of those truths that I want to actually explore this morning in a little more detail. But the Lord's Prayer begins with the words, Our Father in heaven. This is who we're praying our prayer to. Our awesome, almighty, magnificent, wonderful, glorious God. Our Father in heaven, the creator of the universe. And it says, hallowed be his name. The name of God, of Jesus. It's a holy name. It's an important name. It's a powerful name. We sing that sometimes in our, in our songs. But his name is there to be honoured and respected. Hallowed is the word that's used in the prayer. And then we find those familiar words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They are so well known to us. But I wonder, I just wonder, if you've ever paused to reflect on that question, how? How? Can the will of our heavenly Father be done on earth as it is in heaven? How can his desires, our God's desires, his wishes, his intentions, his purposes be realised here on earth? Our earth, which is dominated by evil, our earth which is held under Satan's influence and populated by stubborn and self-centred people. Is it really possible? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you might ask yourself, what did Jesus really mean when he prayed this line in the Lord's Prayer? And this is a deep heart issue that, uh, that this prayer brings to the surface. And it's what I want to look at today. 
<clears throat> now, let's just understand that Jesus was not a deluded idealist. He knew the condition of the world. Indeed, that's why he came to earth. And he knew, Jesus knew, that the will of his Father would not or could not be done in the lives of people who were not willing to listen to him and who rejected his authority. But Jesus knew that God's overall purposes for the world would eventually be realised. In spite of people and nations who have set themselves against him and against the, the purposes and intentions of Almighty God, these things were bound to be achieved despite that opposition. But here in the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, there is a thought that all this starts with the believer, with you and me. As much as it is a prayer for the world. Paraphrasing it, we say it like this, Heavenly Father, may your will be done in me, here and now, just and on earth, just as it will be in heaven. This would be a very simple and straightforward thing to do. If we human beings did not have a will of our own, our free will is the single greatest deterrent and the single greatest enabler of God's will. You see, God didn't create us to be puppets. We are not puppets who dangle at the end of a string in response to the master puppeteer. We have been created by God to have the right and the responsibility to make our own choices and to reach our own decisions about what we do and how we act. On the one hand, we struggle with the desire in us to be all that God wants us to be and to be led by his spirit. And then on the other hand, there is the desire to run our life on our own, led by what we have determined as right and appropriate according to our own wisdom. And this struggle is our experience, a common human experience. So we find ourselves having two wills, moving separately, sometimes in harmony and sometimes in conflict. God's will versus our will. Now, as Christian believers, we know who God is and it's our primary responsibility to see that our human will corresponds to the will of God. Practically all of our Christian growth and maturity lies in doing this, in aligning ourselves with God's will for our lives. Sometimes referred to keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, in line with God's will and purposes. And when we do this, when we align our, our will with God's will, when we get it right, we find that we actually enjoy doing the will of God. In heaven, it'll be no hardship to do God's will. It'll be a joy, a wonderful joy and pleasure. And likewise, in our hearts, if God's kingdom on earth is there in our hearts, then doing the will of God should be a delight and not a drudgery or a chore. When as a Christian believer, we discover the great delight in moving in harmony with God's will and responding to God's will positively, we begin to get a taste of heaven here on earth 
Now, the Bible uses a number of <clears throat> very graphic illustrations to convey to us the manner in which God, by his Holy Spirit, enables to shape the minds and wills of his precious, beloved people. And one of these is that of the potter at work at his will in Jeremiah 18. It's the uh, passage that was read, just read to us. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever used a potter's wheel. But let me tell you, it's a skill that has to be mastered to be able to produce the desired outcome. You need to, just by way of interest, how many of you actually used a potter's wheel? Oh, a few of you. Awesome. Great. Was it difficult? Yeah. <laughs> I've, watched, I've watched somebody who has never done it before try to do something on a potter's wheel. It was an absolute disaster. So, yeah. Um, so, but it is a skill that requires uh, talent, skill, practice uh, to produce a desired outcome. Now, the art of making pottery on a wheel dates back to, well, there we go. It's just, just sort of by way of example, so everyone knows what I'm talking about. Um, the art of making pottery dates back to ancient times. <clears throat> There's a, a painting and a, and a little statue of a potter at the wheel. Now, the wheel in those times didn't have the luxury of an electric motor to turn it as we would have today. It was either turned, either the wheel, the round stone wheel sat on a spindle and was spun either by the hands or had another secondary little wheel underneath it which uh, could be turned by the feet. So, and then the clay that the potter used often contained, it was really pongy, it was on the nose because it contained very smelly ingredients such as rotting grass and other plant material. And the idea of that, adding those things into the clay, was that it improved the quality of the clay and helped it to stick together better. Now, the clay, very important stuff, this clay, was actually prepared in an outbuilding, in a, in a pit. And the potter would get the clay that he was going to use, mix it up with water, and you throw the smelly plant stuff in there as well. And he'd stomp on it, like treading grapes to make wine. But he'd... he'd do this for quite a long time to get the clay into the consistency that he wanted. And when he was ready to craft something, he'd reach down into the smelly, gooey mess in this pit and take a lump of clay and then gently pat it with his hands. And if you just for a moment imagine the scene in the workshop where the potter would take a lump of clay, by the way, that middle illustration is the one with the foot the thing that he'd sit on a stool and turn uh, that bottom wheel with his feet and while the clay would be placed on top, on the top disc. Um, <clears throat> but just imagine the potter getting this lump of clay, putting it, placing it with great precision right in the centre of the, of the wheel. And then as he begins to turn the wheel, he would uh, reach into a couple of... Um, buckets on the other side of the wheel with water in them just to soften his hands, put the water under the clay and he would, as he starts, he's got a, um, in his mind's eye an idea of what he wanted to make and slowly this lump of clay with a soft gentle pressure of his, his fingers on the clay would massage it into uh, what 
what he hoped would be a unique piece of pottery, a piece of beauty. And generally, his intentions were for it to become either a beautiful, useful article like those other pieces of pottery that he'd made over the years, like those things, for example. But then just picture in this workshop, as we've seen in Jeremiah, that as he turns the wheel, caressing the clay, forming it into the shape that he wants, that um, as, as the article begins to take shape, he'd find sometimes there'd be imperfections or impurities in the clay. And the potter would have to change his plans for the clay and make something a little less elegant, something a little more practical and utilitarian. But nothing is wasted. (laughs) Nothing's wasted. But because of the resistance of the clay, what was to be a beautiful goblet now becomes a finger bowl. Now, there are many lessons for us to learn from how the potter works with the clay. And there's references to pottery and potters throughout the Bible. But in verse, uh, sorry, Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. It reminds us that God has reached down into our lives and lifted us out of the miry clay of the slimy pit and set our feet on a rock. It's using that imagery of the potter making that clay. And it continues with God wanting to tenderly and carefully shape us and mould us into people who would reflect his glory. You see, God holds us in his hands and he wants to shape our character and guide our journey through life. And just as the potter uses the water at his side to mould the clay, God uses his word, the Bible, the expressed will of God to shape our lives. But we might ask, why is the Father's will, his intention to turn out truly beautiful people, so difficult to accomplish? Well, the answer is simply that we resist, and it's human nature, to resist his will. We do not cooperate with him. And so despite his best efforts and endless patience, his hands, those gentle, tender, gracious, loving hands are thwarted by our stubborn wills. So as Jeremiah 18 verse 4 puts it, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it best seemed to him. The question we have to ask ourselves is this, are we going to be a piece of china or just a finger bowl? Are we going to be a beautiful goblet Fit, the hold, fit to hold the blessing of God's grace from which others can drink and be blessed? Or are we just going to be a finger bowl in which passers-by will briefly dip their hands and then pass on, forgetting all about it? This imagery might 
um, resonate better with the ladies in our midst who'd want to be a beautiful goblet or, or a vase or something. Um, but I think the guys will get the message, we get the idea of what we're trying to talk about here. <clears throat> the key to the success or failure of our fashioning under the master's hands lies in how we respond to his touch. Do we submit to him or do we resist him? He said, when we submit to somebody else's authority, it means that we go along with that other person's wishes or their commands. It means putting someone else's will before our own. Unfortunately, submission is a very unpopular theme today because submission is often abused. Submission for us is very hard to accept because it goes against our ego, our self-centeredness. And in so many ways, it is very much human nature to resist authority or restraints, whether it's at home or at school or work or toward the government or even towards God. So it's not surprising that we find it difficult to submit to the will of God. We tend to push against it. And yet despite our human nature to be independent and autonomous, the word of God comes through clearly and with enormous emphasis. Obey and live. Disobey, consequences, you will die. Obey and be blessed. The theme that runs through all the, all the Bible, from the Old Testament through the New Testament, disobey and meet disaster. Comply with God's commands and find life abundantly richly, or ignore them and be cut off. Submission is not optional. <clears throat> Submission is not optional if we are to live as God's people. We have to put his will before our own. We have to cooperate with his will and purposes for our lives. You might say, why? Why? Well, when you look at Scripture, you'll find that the rewards are incredible. They're wonderful. They're great. Have a look at what uh, Jesus said in John 14, 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. You know, as we explore the biblical idea of submission, we discover that submission is intertwined with love. You see, we are not submitting. We're not called to submit to a tyrant. But we're called to submit to someone, our loving Heavenly Father, who loves us so much and knows us so well that he sent his beloved son Jesus to die for us on the cross. Jesus himself, as our example, submitted to his Father's will. And his submission was an act of love for his Father, by someone who knew he was so greatly loved. God does not want through submission to dominate us. But instead, through submission, he wants to set us free to be all that we were meant to be. Like a potter moulding his clay. You know, God could force our obedience and submission, but he's created us with the free will 
to submit to him or not. And God respects our decisions. Love and submission are intimately interwoven. They're connected. Love and submission go hand in hand. You see, when you submit to another person out of love, and you know you are loved in turn, it's not frustrating, it's not tense, it's not stressful, but rather it leads to a sense of freedom, a sense of joy, a life blessed with happiness, a life blessed with a fulfilling relationship with our Lord and Saviour. In the same way, if we love God, it means that we will love the intentions and purposes of our Father in heaven. We will see the good and the rightness of his will. So we will live in obedience because we trust in the love of God. The love that God our Father has for us and for the entire world. You see, to love him is to obey him. To obey him is to do his will. And to do his will is to have a little bit of heaven here on earth. So how do we become obedient and submitted to God's will? How do we reach that place where we really want to do God's will and enjoy it? You see, once we understand this concept of submission, we must make a conscious decision. We need to decide to cooperate with God's purposes. And then once having made this decision, we need to ask God by his gracious Holy Spirit to invade and permeate our minds, our wills, our emotions, and especially our wills. And as we set ourselves in that course to obey God, as we decide and do what God asks us to do, we set God's Holy Spirit free to work in us. We release the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit as Christian believers, but we need to free him to do all that God wants to do with us and in us. You see, it's the Spirit of God at work in our wills, our minds, our emotions, who produces an increased desire to obey. And he also gives us the power to obey God's will, God's commands. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 13, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. As we deliberately respond to the directions and instructions that come to us from God's Holy Spirit, we will discover we will have the energy, the strength, the power, the courage to do what he wants us to do. What he asks of us in this life. The goal... Our goal is to find ourselves in complete accord and harmony with the will of God in heaven. And so this is to experience joy, serenity, peace, usefulness, worth. And we embark and engage with amazing adventures in our walk with God as we move in accordance with his plans and purposes for us on this earth. This is, in essence, what Jesus had in mind when he encouraged and instructed his disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The question we have to ask ourselves is this, are we going to be a peace 
a fine china or a pottery or just a mere finger bowl. Sometimes his shaping of us can be just, can be quite um, <clears throat> painful. But the choice is ours as to whether we will let the heaven, you know, God, our Heavenly Father, work in us to create his heart and his attitude and his passions and his perspectives on life. Unfortunately, we haven't got the time. I was going to show a video, but it's about nine minutes long. It's called God's Chisel. And it really makes this point very powerfully, and hopefully we can put the link to that on uh, the bulletin this week. But it's a, uh, a video about God using a chisel on somebody to sort of chop away all those, those bits and pieces in, in one's life that impede our walk with God. But this theme of God shaping us for his purposes brings us to our first reading from Ephesians chapter 2. And in particular, that last verse of that reading, which says, We are God's handiwork. You and I are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We have a purpose, a purpose which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork his work of art, his masterpiece. Just reflect on that a moment. With all our imperfections and flaws, whatever our perspective, our our view of ourselves is, however we see ourselves, what we look at in the mirror, you are God's masterpiece, created for a purpose, created as he wants you to be created. And that's something amazing and incredible. I think a lot of people get people do get um, depressed, disappointed, discouraged in life about how, how they've been shaped or formed. But never forget that God loves you just as you are. You are a work of art, a master, masterpiece. And our, our incredible God who created this entire universe with all its majesty and power and beauty has created each and every one of us to be his masterpiece. And if I can end the sermon on a a negative, God does not create junk. God does not make junk. He's not in the business of making junk. In his eyes, we are special. We're precious, very much loved. That's how he made us, and he continues to shape us and mould us. And so the question remains, are we willing to allow God to work in us so that we can be all that he created us to be so that the world will see him when they see us. Are we willing to allow God to work in us so that we can be all that we're created to be so that the world will see him when they see us? Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us to this point in our lives. We thank you for sending Jesus to die for us, that we are precious and very loved in your sight. And so, Lord, help us not to resist your will and purpose for our lives, but instead set your Holy Spirit free within us. Use us, Lord, to bring honour and glory to you 
wherever our walk in life takes us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.